So two weeks ago, we began um, a new series in the book of Jonah. And we saw in our first installment of this series that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, the great Assyrian city, and to preach against it. But Jonah instead didn't like those orders, and so he went in the direction of Tarshish. Jonah ran. He was a fugitive prophet, a prodigal prophet. Jonah perhaps thought that running from God would lead him to a place of freedom. He thought that by disobeying God's word and doing what made sense to him, what he liked, what he preferred, would lead him to a place of freedom. But running from God never leads to a place of wholeness. It never leads to a place of liberation. Even though we might be tempted to think that, it only leads to bondage. And what we find as we dive into chapter 2 this morning is that Jonah's rebellion led him in a downward spiral. It's interesting as you pay attention closely to the way that the narrator writes this story, there's a word that gets repeated again and again and again. I want you to notice how the, the storyteller depicts Jonah's descent downward. We're going to throw some verses on the screen so we can see this together. Chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went, say it with me, down to Jonah. Thank you, Tom. I think Tom McAndrew was the only one that got that. <laughs> he did graduate from Stanford, so that helps. We'll try that again. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Verse 5. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and had fallen to a deep sleep. Then chapter 2 verse 3 says, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. Verse 6, I sank to the foundations of the mountains, and the earth gates shut behind me forever. The foundations of the mountains is a way of describing the very bottom of the ocean where the mountains begin, the, the mountains roots, if you will. You see what the narrator's doing? He's, he's picturing Jonah going down, 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 down. You can't go any lower, literally. I wonder if you've ever found yourself there. Maybe not literally. I'm not talking about the bottom of the ocean. I'm talking about rock bottom. That's where Jonah found himself. His, his physical location is actually a picture of his emotional and spiritual location. Jonah is in a dungeon of despair dug out by his own disobedience. You see that again in verse 6? The earth's gates shut behind me forever. He pictures the seaweed wrapping around him and entangling him. He's saying, I'm in a dungeon. What we see here in Jonah's life is that if you choose 
to live in rebellion, your life will eventually spin out of control. That consequences will come knocking at some point. That there's always a cost to living in blatant disobedience. That your sin will find you out. Always. And in Jonah's case, we remember in chapter 1 that he's on a ship and the lots were cast and they single him out and he is exposed before these other sailors and they throw his body into the sea. And as he sank down, down, down into the water, a great fish swallows him up. And Jonah suddenly finds himself in a place with no more excuses and no more escape. Jonah is helpless. And in his helpless estate, God finally has him in a place where he could heal him. See, it's often only at rock bottom that we finally wake up to the depths of our folly and return to the Lord. And that's what we see in this story with Jonah. As long as there is any notion in us that we still have available resources or possible solutions to fix things on our own, we're not yet ready for God's redemption. It's at rock bottom that you're finally freed from the sense that you can figure life out apart from God. Maybe you've wondered before why God allowed things in your life to get so bad. Why did this have to happen to me? Why am I in this situation? Is it possible that God wants to let you feel what it's like to try to do life on your own, in your own wisdom, so that he can finally liberate you from self-reliance? Peter Craigie says of Jonah, not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. Keller adds to this, it was only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find your life. See, this is one of the great dangers, I think, in our modern world. Because there are endless schemes and solutions held before us. Right? There are a million quick fixes and self-help remedies that are constantly being put before. I mean, just a quick scroll through, you know, Instagram reveals to us that there are a million self-help remedies. There are countless ways that we are told we can turn our life around and make things better. We can bounce from a fad diet to exercise to meditation to Dave Ramsey to accountability software to books to podcasts to seminars to you name it, all in the name of self-salvation, all in the name of fixing ourselves, of getting our lives right. Just try this and everything will be better. And we keep fooling ourselves into thinking that we can fix it on our own. That we can turn it around with just a little more effort. 
And as long as you believe that you can deal with your sin, that you can deal with your brokenness in your own strength, you have not yet come to the place where God can actually meet you and save you. You'll have to sink lower. By the way, do you know that you can do even deeply religious things as a way of running from God instead of coming to him? See, you can run from God like Jonah by disobeying the rules, or you can run from God actually by obeying the rules, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were zealous to keep the law, but it was so they didn't have to actually deal with God. Their adherence to religion wasn't driven by a loving obedience. It was driven by a self-righteousness. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her short stories, says of one of her characters, there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, if I imagine myself doing well enough on my own, if I think I'm doing a pretty good job of, of keeping the rules, of staying away from sin, then I won't live my life in dependence on God. If I feel that I'm a decent person, I may look to Jesus as an example, but, but I won't need him. I won't utterly rely on him for every breath and to obey him unconditionally. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves, when we finally wave the white flag of surrender and give up saving ourselves that we're ready to experience God's salvation. And in his fatherly love, sometimes God will let us go down, down, down so that we'll finally look up to him. Job 36, 15 says, God rescues the afflicted by their affliction. He instructs them by their torment. God will actually allow you to be afflicted in order to rescue you. It's like a smelling salt to finally wake up to your need of him. You remember the story of the prodigal son? You remember this story? This younger son of the father says to his dad, Dad, your worth to me is your death because in your death I get my inheritance. And so I wish you were dead so I could have what is mine. And the father says here, Gives him his share of the inheritance and the son runs off and he thinks he's winning at the game of life until his money runs out and he's empty and he's poverty stricken and his idea of the good life has failed him and he finds himself in a pigsty. He's Jewish, remember. It doesn't get any lower. Pigs were unclean animals. And in the absolute lowest place possible, it says that he came to his senses. That things were a lot better back with dad. Maybe you find yourself this morning wondering why life is so hard, why you keep running into dead ends, and you wonder when things are ever going to get better. Is it possible that God is inviting you to come to the end of yourself, that he's bringing you lower so that you'll finally look up, that you'll finally come to your senses? 
At the very bottom, Jonah looks up. All the action is down, down, down until chapter 2, verse 4, when Jonah casts his eyes toward the temple. And this glance is figurative because he's in the bottom of the ocean inside of a fish. But in his dying gasps, he remembers the temple and his mind goes there and he calls out to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 4, and I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Verse 7 says something similar. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Jonah catches a mental image of the temple and he begins to cry out for help. Why does he pray to the temple? Well, the temple, recall, was the place of God's covenant presence among his people. At the temple, God made himself known. Is where his presence was found. It was where you could get closest to him. In the Holy of Holies, in the inner part of the temple, was the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were kept. And on top of that Ark were two cherubs, uh, angels whose wings framed the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, God's glory dwelled. The Holy of Holies was God's throne room. And so to look toward the temple was Jonah remembering home. This is his prodigal son moment. From the belly of the fish, he remembers how good it was back home, how good it was in relationship with the father. He remembers how much better things were when he was living in obedience. Obedience is always better than running. Jonah describes his present location as Sheol. Sheol is a, is a biblical term that describes a place of, of darkness that's often associated with either exile, death, or the grave. And worst of all, Sheol was considered a place absent of God's presence to bless. Sheol was a place that was devoid of God's blessing. In verse 4, Jonah fears that he's been banished from God's sight, that he's, he's been cast away. He, he wonders, is God even accessible from this place? Can I even get to him? Jonah perhaps wonders if God's even listening or if it's too late. Pastor David Platt reminds us that Jonah is experiencing not just distress in general, but the consequences of disobedience, the, the consequences of sin and rebellion against God. Jonah is where he is because justice has been meted out. He's, he's experiencing his deserved fate. And yet, in the depths of those consequences, says Platt, Jonah cries out to the God he has run from, the God he has rebelled against, and God hears him and answers his cry. Isn't that amazing? Though we rebel against the holy God of the universe, before whom our sin warrants infinite, eternal judgment, God in his grace hears our cry for mercy. You may be in a pit of your own doing this morning, but listen to me. God is not so far removed from you that he cannot hear you cry out for his help. 
Pastor H.B. Charles says, you can be in the belly of a fish like Jonah. You can be in the lion's den like Daniel. You can be in a cave like David. You can be in enemy territory like Samson. You can be on your sickbed like Hezekiah. You can be on a rooftop like Peter. You can be in jail like Paul and Silas. But no matter where you are or what you've done, God can hear your prayers. That's really good news, church. And what's more, What's even better is that he not only hears your prayers, he's actually anticipating your cry. He's got his hands, so to speak, cupped around his ear. He's leaning in. He wants you to call out to him. He, even the faintest cry will do. For Jonah, it starts with a mere glimpse. He says, I look toward the temple. He, he turns his mind's eye in the direction of the temple and that thought gives him hope because see that mental image of the temple reminded Jonah that in the front of the temple was an altar where priests would daily make offerings for the sins of the people and more than that the high priest on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur the high priest would enter into the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of a bull on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people so they could remain in relationship with Yahweh and as Jonah fixes his mind toward the temple he calls out to God for rescue and he appeals not on the basis of his own goodness he's got none of that at this point there is no goodness in Jonah he appeals, rather, on the basis of God's covenant faithfulness. God had established a way for his people to have a relationship with him. Through the altar, through the covenant sacrifices, the people could be forgiven. They could be put in the right with the holy God. The temple reminds Jonah that there is pardon for sinners. And so as his life fades, he looks to the temple and he's saying to God, in essence, save me despite my guilt. Have mercy on me, not on the basis of my goodness, not on the basis of my worthiness. Have mercy on me according to the mercy found in the altar. Jonah puts his hope in substitutionary atonement. In every generation, says A.W. Tozer, the people who have found God have been those who have come to the end of themselves. Recognizing their hopelessness, they have been ready to throw themselves on the mercy and grace of a forgiving God. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Friends, the good news of Christianity is not that you can pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. It, it is not that God helps those who helps themselves. Christianity does not teach us that God gives grace to the deserving or that even if you do your best, God will do the rest. What Christianity holds is that the way up is simply to look up. Look toward the temple. Look to that place of atonement. 
to that place where your sins were covered and paid for. Charles Spurgeon says, Jonah looked again to the place where God revealed himself, and we look to the person of Jesus Christ, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He looked to the mercy seat sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice, where the Lord was wont to pardon and bless all suppliant sinners, and we also look to Jesus as the great propitiation. Friends, Jesus is the way home for prodigals. He is the temple where God's presence can be found. He is the altar and the place of atonement who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds, we are healed. If you find yourself in a pit this morning, look to Jesus. A single eye is what is needed, says Spurgeon. There is life in a look. There is heaven in a look. Look unto me, Jesus says, and be saved all the ends of the earth. Doesn't matter how far you've run. Doesn't matter how low you've gone. God still wants you to cry out to him. As Jonah looks toward God, he immediately begins to gain perspective. In verse 8, he says, those who cherish worthless idols abandoned their faithful love. I think the ESV gets this a little closer when it says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Another translation makes it even clearer. It says, those clinging to empty idols forfeit the grace that is theirs. Here's what Jonah's saying. He's saying, in the day of trouble... When you find yourself in that helpless place, false gods can't save you. That's what those pagan sailors learned in chapter 1, right? You remember? They're, they're, they're doing everything they can to try to deal with this storm, and they're crying out to their gods. And they realize none of those gods can do anything. And they turn and they believe in Yahweh, the true and the living God. See, if you look anywhere else other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is no hope for you. I want you to hear this. Only in Christianity, only in the Christian religion is there hope at rock bottom. How so? In every other religion, the answer to your dilemma is either explicitly self-help or a mingling of effort and divine intervention. But there's some process to work out. There's a path to follow. There's pillars that you have to perform. In some form or fashion, you've got to do your part. Even, even in the modern religion of expressive individualism, the, 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 the religion of self, to truly set self free, to truly experience happiness, to have a good life, you, you have to find yourself. But what happens when all of your attempts at finding yourself fail you and you're depressed and you don't know who you are? The problem with every religion is that when, when you find yourself in a helpless situation, a genuinely empty state where you can't contribute at all, you're hopeless. But see, the message of Christianity is that the only thing required for your salvation is your hopelessness, your helplessness. 
The people who experience the power of the gospel are those ready to admit that they can do nothing and they're ready to rely completely on God's grace. What qualifies you is your emptiness. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's why Jesus begins his great message, the Sermon on the Mount, with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed if you know that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're blessed if you know you got nothing to offer. You're blessed if you're broken, because then you'll look to God. You'll receive his salvation. See, if you look to anything other than God's covenant faithfulness, his promise to save you, not on the basis of your goodness, but on the basis of his kindness, then what Jonah says is you actually forfeit the grace that's available. You abandon the hope of his steadfast love. If you insist on saving yourself, God can't save you. You abandon that hope. But if you'll empty yourself, he'll meet you there. Maybe you read that phrase, worthless idols, in verse 8, and you feel a distance from what Jonah is saying because you're like, man, I don't worship pagan gods. There's not a pagan deity in my life. Maybe so, but many of us are tempted to trust in things like money or family or vocation as the thing that's going to rescue us. If I could just get this much in the account, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that person to respect me, if we could just get our life in this situation, if I could just get married, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just. And we think that if we attain to that thing, that it's going to secure us. It's going to be able to save us. Do you think you can buy your way out of everything or that you can plan and prepare your way forward, whatever life brings? Listen, you might be tempted to trust in your power, your possessions, your wisdom, your intelligence, but these are fragile things to put your faith in, church. There will come a day when those things cannot save you, cannot secure you. They will fail you. And what then? That was Jonah, right? Jonah was a prophet of God. He had a great job. He had respect. He had clout. He knew God's word inside and out. He had religion. None of that meant anything in the belly of a fish. There in that dungeon at rock bottom, Jonah had one hope. God's faithfulness. Will God be faithful? Will God come through? Is God who he says he is? Can I put myself 100% on his character, not mine? He's finally thinking clearly. And this leads to the last thing, which is Jonah's praise. Look at this, verse 9. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed because salvation belongs to the Lord. I want you to notice that Jonah's location has not changed. 
But with this clarity of perspective now comes an exclamation of praise. At rock bottom, Jonah starts to sing. He begins to worship God. See, church, this is critical. This is critical for us to get. You worship your way into sin and you worship your way out. Here's what I mean. What got Jonah in trouble in the first place was self-worship. I don't want to do what God says. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what's comfortable. He worshiped his way into sin. And see, the only way to worship your way out of sin, or the only way to get out of sin is to worship your way out. Repentance is reorienting your worship back to where it belongs. To repent, you simply need to say honest things about yourself and honest things about the Lord. In other words, what God wants from us when we're in the pit, when we find ourselves at that rock bottom place, is not self-loathing. God does not want us to self-loathe. He doesn't want self-deprecation. What he wants is our hearts. What he wants is our worship. He wants us to wake up to him. And that's what Jonah does. He begins to say true things about God. And in light of that, he begins to worship God even while he's still in the pit. I want you to notice something with me as we close. Notice that the fish in this story was actually a vehicle of God's salvation, not his punishment. It's tempting in the moment, isn't it? When we find ourselves in that place of rock bottom, when we find ourselves in that hard place and we, we just feel so low, to look at our circumstances and to see that as God's punishment of us. But can't you see that in this story, the fish was actually God's salvation. God didn't send the fish to punish Jonah. He sent the fish to purge Jonah of his self-centeredness. The fish was saving Jonah. The pit was not Jonah's punishment. It was God's providential way of breaking Jonah of his self-reliance. This entire section is bracketed by the fish. The fish swallowed Jonah. The fish spit Jonah onto the shore. And we notice who's doing all of it. The Lord appointed the fish. That's why Jonah says here, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation from beginning to end is God's work. It's God's doing. Jonah finally sees that. Friend, your life, listen to me, your life is bracketed in by God's providence. You can't escape him. That may be terrifying to you. That's actually really good news. It was good news for Jonah. Didn't feel like it at the time, but it was good news for Jonah. God is not out for your demise. He is out for your deliverance. But he'll bring you low to wake you up. He'll take you down so you'll look up. And so if you find yourself in that place this morning, what God wants you to do is to look toward him, to put your hope in him, to turn from your sin and to begin to sing your way out of the pit. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, 
who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray together.